You're listening to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast. We're the business development resource for group practice owners, where we talk candidly about business ownership and leadership. From practice building tips to live coaching to real talk episodes with other group practice owners, we're the resource you've been looking for to help you grow your group practice. I'm your host, group practice owner and entrepreneur, Maureen Werbach. This episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes is an online EHR, practice management, and billing software designed for mental health professionals. Therapy Notes has everything you need to manage patient records, schedule appointments, create rich documentation, and bill insurance right at your fingertips. They offer free and unlimited live support seven days a week. Their streamlined software is accessible wherever and whenever you need it. To get two free months, go to www.therapynotes.com forward slash r forward slash the group practice exchange. Need a new accountant or bookkeeper? Meet Green Oak Accounting, an accounting firm that works specifically with private practices. They do all of your accounting needs from budgeting to accounting to bookkeeping and payroll to building your dashboard. On top of that, they can help you set up your profit first systems. Go to greenoakaccounting.com and mention the group practice exchange for $100 off your first month. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Group Practice Exchange podcast. This week, I have someone on who's been with us before. Her name is Dr. Tara Sanderson, and it's been about, I want to say, just over a year that she was on talking about bringing on practicum students and interns and what the difference between the two are and some expectations that schools have and that practice owners should have when bringing on interns and practicum students and how they can overall function in your practice. So if you haven't listened to that, that's episode 164. But I've brought Tara back on again this year so that we can chat a little bit more about some additional questions that have been coming up lately. So hi, Dr. Sanderson. Thanks for coming on. Yay. Thank you so much for having me back. And pre-recording, I got to know that there's some really exciting things happening for you too, which is so cool. I feel like you're just trailblazing the supervisory like training of the next generation of therapists world. And I love that you're doing that because it's so sorely needed. Yes, it absolutely is. I think it is one of those things that we all just get a little tiny bit of training in how to do supervision. And then we're launched into the world of it and expect to know how to do it because we're supposed to be training them really on, you know, everything that there is to know outside of school. And we really do need more support to do that. So I hope that that's what I'm providing. Yeah. So this time around, we're just going to dive into a couple of questions that you seem to be getting the most of. And so, like I said, if you want to get some of those intro, like startup to bringing on interns questions answered, go listen to episode 164. But I figured we can just talk a little bit about some of those newer questions. I think COVID has definitely changed the landscape in private practice as a whole and your specialty area. So I have a few questions that I figured I'd ask. Kind of go from there. Yeah, sounds great. I know one of the things that gets asked a lot is kind of your advice in this time, because I feel like our advice is probably just around group practice ownership as a whole has changed over Mm -hmm. the years. Has your feedback on setting up an internship program changed since COVID? Kind of those pros and cons and what to think about before even thinking about starting. Because I feel like a lot of people are starting things based off of money or 
seeing that other people are doing it and thinking this is just something I should be doing. Yeah. And the other one I see is compassion. They get some student who emails them out of the blue and says, I just need, can't you please? Yeah. And then they're like, well, you know, I was thinking about that in the next few years. I might as well start now. Like yeah. I have interest. I don't even have to advertise. I can do it, which I love. And I love that people have so much compassion and want to help. And there are some things that you have to do to get started. I think my biggest thing that has changed is to simplify as much as possible. In my beginning stages, I really pushed for people to make sure that they had everything they need in place before they say yes, which I still believe in. And I think that you need to do that. But I also think that I have learned to simplify that process quite a bit. So utilizing your EHR as a way to keep track of your supervisee is one of my biggest tips ever now, because then all of your stuff is located in a system that you already regularly use instead of trying to have some other place where it gets all hosted and all of those pieces. I think I learned to simplify by adding them to the system that I already had in place for HR. So having a spreadsheet, just like I have with my HR practices to track some of the things that really do get asked five years later when you will not likely remember what the start date was of that intern. You need to have a way to track those pieces. But utilizing systems that we already are using is absolutely the best way to like simplify it down and make it work. The other thing that now, especially because of COVID, that is vital is recognizing that you may not be in the same space as them. A lot of schools gave up the requirement of needing to be on site when students or interns were doing their work. And so now you have to navigate what it means to be available while they are doing their work. So figuring out a way to triage, if you have a client during the same hour that they have a client, but you're obviously not in the same location, how do they get a hold of you? What do you do in that part of it? That looks different than them being able to walk down the hall and knock on the door. Um, And uh, for me, that really meant I had to look at my schedule differently and try and figure out where can I block things where they've got paperwork time so I know that my clients won't get interrupted or, you know, making sure I do more notification to my clients that I might be interrupted during our time. I also, over COVID, added a general manager to my practice. I am lucky to have that be also my husband, so I can easily kind of farm things out to him. But he has, you know, over 15 years in social work experience, so he's able to help triage at a level of like, is this suicidality and Tara needs to be out of this session now? Or is it problem solving and I can help and, you know, he can help in some way, which really was effective for me. But those were thoughts I didn't have to think of pre-COVID. You know, I was just down the hall and they just had to come find me. So really making some of those adjustments is huge. My setup at my computer, I have my phone sitting next to me to where I can easily glance to see it just in case my intern is saying something like my client is suicidal help and I can navigate those things a little bit quicker. And then the last part, I think because COVID really changed a lot of how we think about our businesses and have had to like strengthen up our businesses, it's also really cost us a lot in like trying to figure out how to make more money, how to keep more money, that we've let some things slide. Not all of us, not in a terrible way, but like we have. We've had to let some things that we would have normally done differently go because we just can't manage at all. But I really want to remind people that everything we do in our practice is training for those interns. Every intern is watching everything you do and saying, that's how it's done. And we'll take that and tell someone else that that's how it's done because they saw you do it. So one of the things that came up for me in the last couple of years was our state of Oregon did some analysis and decided that students fall under a certain category and people who don't have a certificate of approval can't have students anymore. 
So there was this big shuffle and a big kerfuffle around. And I had worked with the state to kind of have this as my end date of November to have students and until we kind of reanalyze the rules and whatever. And one of my students is also an employee. So she was able to count hours for both. And she asked me, would it be okay if I just kept counting the hours? And I said, no. Like, and the state's not going to come audit me. The likelihood of them coming and double checking that she's not counting hours is probably minimal. The risk is like stupid low. And no, ethically, it is not okay for us to just keep counting hours. Let's talk about the feeling of, you know, that risk and, you know, your desire to want as many hours as possible before you go off on internship. Like we have to balance those two things. And it's really important that we remember that even if no one checks, it's so important for us to do the right thing because these guys are watching. Yeah. You bring up a good point that I think even transcends beyond or outside of the internship world for group practice owners of like doing the easy thing that might not always be what's legal or ethical, but feels like it's such a small risk in the scope of things. And in reality, I feel like those are the things that can get confounded the more either interns you have or the more years you're doing the thing that you shouldn't be doing. And I see it all the time. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Another thing that gets brought up a lot is if practice owners are interested and have made the decision that having an intern program or having interns in their practice is something that aligns with their values and their mission is how to fill their caseloads, especially in the beginning. And I guess it's a two-part question of how to fill the caseloads and also creative ways around fees, like whether it's lighting scale or reduced rate. I see a lot of people doing it where they kind of just make up some rates and lower it for certain people who can't afford it. And yeah, and it is not like very structured. And so what is your feedback on tips for filling those interns caseloads, but also, you know, when it comes to rates for clients that see interns? Yeah. For filling their caseloads, I kind of have one ethic goal kind of responsibility, I think, mention, and then a couple of tips. So my ethical responsibility is to remember that anytime that we're advertising interns or students or whatever, that we really have to be clear on the advertising piece of it. I think that, and this is just my opinion, so take it for that, my little soapbox, I don't think that students should be advertising themselves as clinicians for the reason that our public doesn't see them as being different. No matter how many times you write student under their name, even if we were to put it in big block letters, people just see them on Psychology Today and assume they're a clinician. If we're going to have students advertising, they should be advertising our practice because all of the clients should be coming through the practice and farmed out to the students that are appropriate for them to see. Because not everybody who contacts them on Psychology Today is a good fit, right? So we want to, as the supervisor, be in control of who they're seeing because they're not ready to see just anybody. Little rant aside, the other piece that I think is really important is to create some sort of system for triaging clients. I like to have all of my interns answer the phone and answer the emails that come in so that most likely the person that they're talking to is going to be the person that they see, but they get practice in being able to hear a person's story in 15 minutes or less Mm -hmm. and decide if it's good for them because of what we've already discussed for them as a practice or be able to take the information and say, great, we're going to triage this with my team and we'll find you a great fit. And we kind of move that on. 
So they get practice saying yes. They get practice saying, oh, I don't know. And they get practice saying no, if they're not a good fit for our practice. My practice doesn't see a lot of littles. So anytime a parent calls and says, I've got a six-year-old, my team has to get good at saying, no, thank you. We're going to send that to someone else, right? right? Or if there's high risk or high need, then we're able to practice those pieces. All of that practice makes a huge difference for them feeling confident getting ready to launch, but it also makes a really good conversion. If the person, if it fits in all the guidelines and they can say, yes, they're already talking to the therapist, they're going to be seeing the clients tend to not care as much that they're a student Mm -hmm. because all they've already gotten to know them and they feel connected. And that really helps a ton. The other piece that I like to do is when I get a new intern, as we talk about like the stages of who they're going to see over time. So we usually start with some folks tend to be in the CBT-ish category of anxiety or whatever, just to make it, you know, like we've got some structure we can build. And then as they're building their theoretical orientation over the course of the year, we can start branching out into those parts of what they'd like to be seeing. So I started my practice looking at uh, teens with anxiety. And so I really challenged all of my interns to think about the places where people with anxiety hang out. Mm-hmm. And the answers are like, dentist's offices and gynecologists and our pediatricians that see people all the time, maybe even more than we do with anxiety. And so we started working with those offices around our area. During COVID, one of the actual pluses of COVID, not that there were many, was that we could do more opportunity to connect with those companies because it's so much faster to get online and chat with somebody than it is to go drive to their office and wait until somebody's available and then do some of those other pieces. So we were able to do some like staff meetings with different local offices where my interns were able to speak about a topic, whether it's anxiety or burnout or parenting or how to know when there's a true level of risk for suicidality to doctors and dentists. We even had an allergy clinic. They were so hilarious when they talked to us about They have a lot of training in what you have to do when somebody has anaphylactic shock. But then at one point they were giving a shot for an allergy thing and the client just happened to mention in passing that they were suicidal and the whole office like froze and was like, we don't know what to do with that. So we were able to go in and do a training with them about like, when somebody says this, how do we respond? What do you need to be asking? What do you need to do with that client? And all of that able to do over Zoom because... We didn't have to travel anywhere and waste time in that piece of it. So utilizing those avenues then makes you beholden to those companies and they refer to you a lot. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And so then along those lines is you get more clients or potential clients calling who might be willing to see an intern. What are some of your pieces of feedback when it comes to those rates then or you know, different ways that people can look at structuring those fees for interns? Yeah. I think one of my best tips is to remember that setting fees is just math. We do not have to have a big emotional connection to any of our fees. It is okay for it to just make sense mathematically. So uh, one of my best tips is to know how much it costs for each of those interns per hour Mm -hmm. so that you're able to set your fee appropriately. So you add up all the costs of them being a part of your EHR and all the ways that, you know, we typically do if we have employees in the first place, but, you know, we're doing that for students and then you kind of divide it out. I take a look at the area around me of who's got what kinds of fees for students as well, uh, just to make sure that I'm in a good range of that comparison. 
I don't think that we have to match or be better than other practices, but I do think it's important to just kind of take a look at the market around you. Maybe you're going to go here, but I see a lot of practice owners who want to do like a sliding scale, Mm -hmm. get reduced rates. It tends to be like uh, some flat dollar amount that is typically less than a fully licensed person. Mm -hmm. But with a sliding scale, I see a lot of practices that are doing it where they it has there's no structure to it. What is your feedback for that? Because I feel like that tends to be interns, provisionally licensed folks. That tends to be where those sliding scale clients are coming in, and I feel like there's some danger around having a sliding scale if you don't have the appropriate structure for it. So, what's your feedback? Hundred percent. This is the area where I think that we have the most impact in helping our interns and pre-licensed folks understand the finance side of our business in addition to the clinical side. Supervision to me is a holistic process. We have to be giving them all the tools that they need to really run their business as well as do the clinical part. And this is an area where I think it's super important. So I walk my interns through, this is how much it costs per session. This is what it pays for, for all of those pieces. And then we take a look at like, this is my budget for the year and what I am spending from my profits to help people. So this is my discretionary fund to say, okay, I'm as a practice, we're going to spend $10,000 this year in helping people. So that's going to go to like, we do some Christmas donations to, you know, adopt a family thing. That's going to go to the low and no cost services that may go to helping somebody that we kind of find out, but like, this is my dollar amount. And then I have eight clinicians. So I'm going to then divide that by eight clinicians. So each of you has a little pool of this low and no cost money. So then when you're working with somebody and say, okay, I'd really like, you know, this person maybe has a really high deductible plan or they're going to see a student, then you've got this little pool of money that you're tracking. And of course I'm tracking too, like (laughs) this is not fully their responsibility that you're tracking to navigate that. So we set it up in a way of like, every time you use some of that scholarship fund, for your client, we're going to do that in 12 session chunks. So if you're doing it for 50% of the fee that they would be doing, that's going to use your money faster on one person than over the course of the year doing multiple people. But I don't police that or arrange that. It's them to track because when they go into business for themselves someday, they're going to also have to track that. I love that. Building that system. As an aside, I love that this piece that you're saying, but also a few other things you said in today's episode. A lot of practice owners, including myself, work really hard at trying, and I don't have interns or provisionally licensed folks, but we work really hard at trying to minimize any non-clinical work that they do so that they can come in, just do the clinical. It's kind of like the benefit of working in a group practice. But as you're speaking, I'm realizing the value of doing almost the opposite. You mentioned them answering phones and all that kind of stuff because it gives them the full picture of the experience of being a clinician. And so I just wanted to share that insight that I'm getting from listening to you today. Kind of talk about this. Yeah, I think there's pros and cons on both sides, right? But I do think, especially when we're talking about we are training them, whether we're training them up to be a part of our practice long term or whether we're training them to launch and do their own thing, having them get the whole experience. Because one of the biggest complaints I think I see on Facebook is, you know, these people are so entitled and they don't know what it really takes to run this practice. And my first thought always is like, well, did we show them how hard it was? And not in a complainy way, but like, this is just business. This is what it means to run one, whether you're a solopreneur or, you know, a big business, like it just, it takes 
tracking every single session and how much money you have left in that account to be able to do these types of services. One of the issues I have with a lot of my trainees is this fear around money and having money conversations with clients. And this really helps with that of saying, okay, every eight to 10 sessions, you're talking with them about whether or not they need to continue to access the scholarship or not. And at some point, you're going to run out of dollars in your scholarship fund. So you're going to have to have a termination conversation or you're going to have to transfer them to being full rate because you only have so much money and we don't have extra from that. So then building that into our clinical conversations of what that means for a client, how can you focus on these are the goals we're going to be working on because this is all we have time for with the money that we've got available in this scholarship to you. I love that. I think it's just such a really clear way of looking at reduced rates or sliding scales with interns. I want to end with what is, and hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot, or what is one, maybe it doesn't have to be the one, but one of your biggest either lessons learned or pieces of advice for people who have made the decision to bring on interns and they have yet to do it. Uh, My probably one of the lessons that I work on every time I take a new intern is remembering that as much as I do the job of screening them to make sure that they're a good fit for my practice and all of those things, I still have to do all the work of not only training them, but reviewing all the things. I'm trying politely to say, like, I can't trust them yet. Yeah. And I don't know the polite way to say that, but it's true. Like, you can't trust them yet. You can't take everything that they either say or write or whatever as true. So we have to give them enough grace to let them fail miserably throughout time and learn from those pieces because that's what they're here for. But we also have to do that in a protected way of making sure we know everything. So having them track all of their people who have risk and let you know of all of that every week, tracking how they are physically and mentally and emotionally doing, because we have to make sure we care for our clients as an extension of caring for them. And making sure that they're doing all of their, you know, taking all of their money that they're supposed to and not accidentally charging cash instead of card or, I mean, it's a lot of upkeep to have interns and check everything. It was amazing to me, probably my third or fourth year of having interns. I had people who were just, I knew it at the time that they were people pleasers, but they were definitely yes people. And so I would tell them to do something. They would say yes. And then I didn't follow up because I trusted them to do it. And by the end of the year, I realized that they hadn't copied any of their documentation from like messaging with clients or doing whatever from their emails to the system. So the last two weeks that they were there, I had to cancel some of their appointments just to get them to finish their paperwork so they could graduate on time. And it was just so messy because I didn't follow up immediately because I kept having it in my head of like, well, they're such a good person. I can totally trust that when their yes means yes. And the truth is we just can't trust them yet. Um, I want to actually follow up with one last question, but it's going to be a quick number answer if you can think of it. On that note, how many hours would you say you are spending on one intern per week? Three hours. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. That's it for me. Done and done. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tara. Um, I feel like this is just an ongoing conversation that is more front of mind these past couple of years. And so I'm grateful that there's someone like you out there because I definitely am not the um, person that has all the insights when it comes to 
interns and provisionally licensed folks. So I appreciate you being out there and really having such, you know, there's a lot of people who provide support and coaching and things like that, where I feel like I don't fully trust how they do things, you know, and then I'm like, Ooh, and they're now teaching other people how to do this. And when it comes to interns and just the way you do things, it's so great to feel like there's someone who's really doing it so well and so ethically and so thoughtfully and teaching other practice owners how to do the same thing. So I appreciate you for all the things that you do for our future therapists and also for group practice owners who are, you know, thinking of jumping into this too. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. If anyone has questions around interns and practicum students, how could they reach out to you? Yeah. My website is drtarasanderson.com. Pretty easy. (laughs) And you can message me from there. You can see my intern page from there. Happy to help in any way I can. Awesome. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Group Practice Exchange podcast. Like what you heard? Give us five stars on whatever platform you're listening from. Need extra support? Join the Exchange, a membership community just for group practice owners with monthly office hours, live webinars, and a library of trainings ready for you to dive into. Visit www.members.thegrouppracticeexchange.com forward slash exchange. See you next week.